You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. All right. So this is a very interesting little place that we find ourselves right here. Can you introduce yourself and tell people where we're recording this interview and maybe describe what's around us right now? Um, okay. My name is Violet and I'm at my lot that I've been at for about seven years. I was living at a squat down the street that was really thrashed. It was behind a burned down house and there was like no windows. The door was ajar. It was like a place where the neighbors threw their trash. It pretty much chaos. And I had survived one winter in there. The roof was kind of caving in, leaking because it was half burned. And I walked by here on my way to BART or maybe 99 cent store when it was here. And it was all fennel. And to me, that was an indication that no one had been here for a while. So then I went down to the assessor's Just office. because it was so overgrown? Yes, yeah. like front to back, huge. And just knowing plants and being like, that takes a while for fennel to do that. Most places, if they maintain a place, they knock that back. Um, so I went to the assessor's office and researched who had owned it and then proceeded to move in from there. Yeah. So when's the last time you've paid rent anywhere? Um, 11 years ago. So you've been living in the Bay Area for, <laughs> wow. Well, you, so you've been basically living without paying rent in the Bay Area for a very long time. That's that's impressive. It's super impressive. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very different world when I started squatting, and I've been continuously squatting that entire time. Wow. That was Violet Thorns and her property. Oh. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't call it her property, but we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, Violet's land, it feels like a little oasis. Let me paint a picture. Behind a chain-link fence on a residential street in West Oakland, there's a small weathered wooden structure that looks more like something you'd see up in Mendocino or Humboldt. Inside the, uh, I guess you could call it a tiny home, there's just enough room for a small bed, a few dozen books, and all kinds of jars and instruments that are part of Violet's herbal apothecary business. The rest of the property is exploding with more than 160 species of plants, mostly California natives, that she's managed to grow despite having no running water. And <laughs> there's also a bird bath, which is why you'll be hearing a lot of chirping in the uh, background of this interview. I was kind of surprised at how nice the place was because I've been in some pretty disgusting squats over the years. Moldy carpets, holes punched through the walls, vermin, you know, like rats, cockroaches everywhere. But Violet's spot felt more like a miniature farm. <laughs> Even though Violet doesn't exactly look like what most people might picture as a farmer. She's got bleach blonde hair, giant heart-shaped earrings, Lip ring, torn fishnets, punk rock tattoos. So, yeah, pretty much what a lot of my old squatter friends used to look like. But they all gave up squatting years ago. I've been uh, thinking about squatting a lot lately, ever since I did a few episodes about the founding of Oakland and Berkeley a couple months back. The first wave of white settlers who came here during the gold rush era illegally squatted on a rancho that was owned by the Peralta family, who'd gotten this land from the King of Spain as a gift for helping to colonize California and enslave its native people. After California became a state, our town's founding fathers were able to legitimize their hold on this land because the American courts were friendlier to these white squatters than the previous landowners who were associated with Mexico. Anyway, all this is just to say that squatting has a long history in the East Bay, although it can look quite different from era to era, especially considering who's writing the history. For example, most books wouldn't refer to our first mayor as a squatter. They'd probably call him a pioneer or a settler. But back during the gold rush, it wasn't that hard to find 
land for the taking in California. <laughs> and uh, things look a lot different now. Oakland, the Bay Area, California, we're at ground zero of what's now becoming a national housing crisis. The problem is so bad here that, you know, I feel like I don't even need to explain why. Everybody knows the system is broken. And yes, there are a lot of people trying to fix it. But in the meantime, folks are dying in the streets every single day. While in Oakland alone, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of properties currently sitting vacant. So instead of waiting for a solution that may never come, Violet is one of the people who decided a long time ago not to play by the rules of this broken system. As a trans person, she decided that the Bay Area was one of the few places in America where she felt safe. And even though she couldn't afford to live here, she figured out a way. Today's episode is about how she did that and what Violet will do next when Alameda County decides to sell her little oasis to the highest bidder. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. What history do you want to know? Because that's like a lot of my life. It is, yeah. Well, I guess I'm just wondering sort of like uh, what leads one to like the squatting lifestyle. Like, oh. were you, did you did you first learn about uh, like squats through like the punk scene or something like that? And yes. Yeah. That's exactly how I learned. And I don't think I paid much mind to it at all in like all the time before in which I had lived in like a ton of cooperative housing or like communes, um, collective housing. And we had stayed at a squat called the G-Spot that's no longer here. We stayed there after an anarchist book fair. Was in, that in Oakland? That was, yeah, it was in Dogtown mm -hmm. um, by the Triangle Park. And we were like, what is this? This is incredible. You know, we were living in a co-op in Santa Cruz. What was incredible about it? Just the fact that it was, no one was paying for it. And it wasn't like a dilapidated hellhole. It was like cool things were happening. They had projects. It seemed like people were really free to express themselves. It was like, I don't know, a lot of different art on the wall. And the people were freaky. And we were like, this is what's up. This is it. Um, and then later I like moved around some and I ended up living in the lower bottoms and I was an addict, alcoholic, I ran out of money, I really had no nowhere to go and I was like what am I gonna do and a friend was like I'm in this spot on West Mac and MLK and that was a hot mess mm -hmm. and they're like do you want to live there and I was like sure because I didn't have money for rent like I had a real need and that began this entire thing yeah <laughs> yeah you said you moved to the Bay Area when you were about 29, but you uh, had like been in the kind of anarchist world and punk scene for years before that. So had you heard about like the Bay Area squatting scene before you got here? No, not at all. No, it didn't even occur to me that it was a thing that could be done until I was at the G-Spot. But yeah, it was, that was what was so cool about it was that we were sitting on the porch of G-Spot just being like, oh my God, like what is this whole new action that you can take to house yourself that we never even considered? Yeah. 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 It's kind of funny because I feel like when I, I moved to the Bay Area in 2003 and I feel like when I got here, some of the older people that I hung out with who had been squatters in maybe like the 80s or the 90s. It was like that classic thing of like, oh, you just missed like the golden era. Like, oh, you're too late. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you could squat anywhere. There was factories, you know, all over the place, dumpsters overflowing with uh, bread, you know, and all kinds of other things you can eat. It was like the, it was like the easy life. And now it's like so much harder. Like, you know, we're getting kicked out left and right. So like when you started squatting, tell me about like that era and like what you knew about like previous eras. Cause there was some kind of like very famous, some might say notorious squats in Oakland 
in that early 2000s, maybe like late 90s time, did you know anything about that? Like, tell me a little bit about like the trajectory of like what your understanding of the squatting scene has been here in the East Bay. Well, one thing that's funny is that like I'm that person now. I'm like the older person who's like, <laughs> back in the day, the dumpsters were like overflowing and like you could just bust into anywhere and like house yourself. So that's pretty funny just because when I started was so long ago. Um, uh, well, when I first started squatting, I didn't really know too much about it. It was kind of just people from around town would come to the place I lived at, which had just been opened and kind of like introduce us to the scene. Um, and this was kind of like around the Occupy Oakland time, yeah, right? Yeah, that was like 20, it was a, like a year before, uh-huh. like a little bit before. Okay. But slowly, since the scene had so much music and house shows, which was like the primary reason why I moved to the Bay, I think at the time was um, we'd be like squat hopping and going to all the shows. And I think through that and then definitely through Occupy was like the ultimate history lesson of squatting because all the OGs would come out and Mm -hmm. like old Black Panthers would be schooling people and like old squatters would be schooling people and like new squatters would who would be from other places in the world would like tell us how it's done and some of the older squatters helped us squat with our legal fight so it was kind of like a trial by fire a little bit but I don't know if I would have got that history lesson had as fast and thorough if Occupy hadn't happened. Yeah, that brought a lot of people together. Do you have any sense of the scale of how much squatting was happening back then? Would you say there was hundreds of people, thousands of people, dozens of people, you know, squatting in Oakland at the time? I know it's like really hard to kind of estimate because there's obviously a lot of different types of sort of squatters and squatting. I guess I'm just trying to like maybe get a sense if there's any way of sort of measuring how big it was. Well, there's different eras. When I wrote down the list prior to this interview, like I wrote down a list of the squats that I remember and the squats people told me about. Um, I don't know about when I first started. I kind of feel like that was like a middle era between the time you were mentioning with like, oh, the old school squatters who were like, oh, it used to be like this in the day and then a new wave of it happening. But I think at the time when I started, let's say maybe there was like 15 and there was probably much more that were not affiliated with any kind of like scene, yeah. you know? Um, and then I think at the height of that like five or six year period after Occupy, I think I counted like 30 to 40 squats. Wow. Yeah, there was a lot and there's a lot of layover. So altogether there was like maybe uh, 70 or something. Wow. I think the idea, especially with Occupy, like it made the idea of occupying something for a like survival strategy for like a political reason like really popular yeah. in a way that it's not as popular now hmm. and it gave people agency to even be like oh that's a thing yeah like maybe these squatters aren't just like the zounds record where it's like some dirty squatters you know like maybe they're doing something positive I think a lot of people probably don't really have like a clear picture in their mind of like what a squat can be. And obviously it can be lots of different things, but in your experience, can you describe to me like some of the different types of spaces that have been squatted in Oakland? Yeah, all kinds of different variations on a theme. I feel like there's an untold history of like black squats that is kind of lost And that was a big portion of squats back in the day, like in the trees neighborhood um, and in East Oakland and down here in the lower bottoms that were not really affiliated with like the Occupy movement or anything. It was Mm -hmm. just like town locals housing themselves and like taking care of each other. And then a lot of people had spots like this that would be like a lot with a garden, with like a small dwelling. I don't know, some houses would be like very political, others would be just a setup for getting cash for keys like a hustle and some are very like quiet they don't want anything to do with anyone you know it's like you kind of go through the back and others like our house was outrageously flamboyant and super like punk
What do you know about the history of this lot? Um, well, I know that it's owned by a defunct real estate company that was existent in the 80s. And they went bankrupt, I think, also in the 80s. And it somehow is just red taped. And it never, like, sold at an auction. It, the taxes aren't paid, so it occasionally goes up for tax default auction. And, and that's, like, the county putting it up for auction? Yes, or? exactly. Okay. And, yeah, that was very appealing to me because one of the ethics at the time of the collective of squatters I was in was that, like, we're not here to try to, like, fish property from, like, black and brown landholders or renters mm -hmm. or anything. And so... You know, we would just bypass stuff that was owned by a BIPOC person. And, or if we found out later that the owner was BIPOC and they asked us to go, we would just leave. You know, mm -hmm. there was, we're not trying to take up that kind of space. And this was nice because it's the perfect kind of situation where it's like a defunct property that has nobody's name on it anymore. The owner, I think, has had many businesses since then that folded. It's kind of the perfect situation. So take me through the process of, yeah, like you kind of, t you mentioned earlier about how you walked by and you saw the overgrown fennel and you decided to do a little research. Take me through that process of digging into the background of this lot and then step by step of how you built it up to this pretty impressive, you. you know, home that we're sitting in right now. There's like a RV on the property, a nice little dwelling, uh, you got your little sort of apothecary lab back here, lots of beautiful plants. It feels like cats running around. It's, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's like super cute. Yeah, it is. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so a lot of this we learned from Steve DiCaprio, who was mm -hmm. like the kind of big deal squat lawyer at the time when all the squats were happening. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about him for a second? Because I feel like he is sort of like the godfather of the Oakland squatting scene. Yeah, uh, he had a squat called the Banana House that I think he's the first person to get a... to be awarded... Um, what is it called? It's called... Um, oh, adverse possession? Adverse possession. He's the first person to get adverse possession on a property since like the 70s in California. Um, through illegal means by paying the back taxes and like proving that he had been there the whole time and kind of like a genius punk lawyer who like, yeah, I feel like really knows how to work the law. He like brought up a bunch of squats like and was really putting a lot of time into doing legal work mm -hmm. and like getting people used to going to like the law library and like what is the assessor's office? How do you find out who the owner is? How do you find out what the back taxes are? Like what do you do when you face an eviction? I feel like he was kind of Johnny on the spot with all that mm -hmm. stuff and very helpful to the point where we were able to learn enough where we could even manage our own legal writing at a point, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. There's definitely some, some arcane laws being invoked and whatnot. Yeah, that are problematic. <laughs> like, they're kind of like settler colonial type of laws and stuff. Uh, the homesteading declaration and stuff like that. But <laughs> it's kind of like using the law against itself in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that the hot mess was very good at was taking legal avenues while at the same time being like, we understand that the court is a theater of horror. It's like a theater mm -hmm. of white supremacy. We understand that uh, we enter into these realms that are themselves systems that we want to destroy rather than like fit into neatly, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I love that about that project. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So once you found out that there was for all intents and purposes, no owner of this lot, how did you start moving in and what was that process? Did you check in with the neighbors first? Did you just uh, start like bringing your stuff here? Were you uh, setting up a tent amongst the fennel? How, what did it look like oh, yeah. when you when you started moving in? Um, well, I was just a block away, so I had a place to be, and so I could take it a little slow. Um, I think what I did first was, yeah, I, I did my research. I went to go see the owner and it, check the back taxes. Is it viable? Like, is it a situation where I think a landlord is gonna show up and kick me out? Then basically I just drove up in my hearse one night and sat. You had a hearse. I did, I had a 77 Cadillac hearse. <laughs> so I drove up in my gray 77 Cadillac hoopty hearse and um, pulled up, I waited, and then I cracked the lock and put my own lock on. 
and then using a bolt cutter yes mm -hmm. um <laughs> and then first i built the garden so first i came in just building the garden and using that as an opportunity to like meet people and be like i'm doing something positive um how did those interactions go i mean they went well i have a gift of gab and i i was really brought up by some people in my youth to like really treat people like family and like just kind of cut through some of the weird alienation and that has helped me very much and the conversations went good i mean a lot of people were some people were like clearly like what are you doing here this is very weird but um i think seeing me doing something positive not bringing trouble i've never been very noisy here i took it slow um, always kind and considerate and not really hiding myself and, and as those relationships built I feel like they just got better and better yeah. um, but at first it was a little weird because I'm just like this strange weird trans girl hanging out building this uh, this garden now and it's mm -hmm. like well why why are you doing it why are you here like who are you and it, I kind of feel like there's a part of me that had to like kind of front a little bit, you know, just to like make it happen and be like, oh, I'm here legitimately. And I've had certain rules where like I don't talk about the legal status or, you know. Did you have like a cover story? Sort yes, of? definitely. Can you, t can you explain what it was or uh, is it, it a trade secret? It's uh, <laughs> the trade secret is that, um, what is it, that I'm here by permission from the mm -hmm. owner and that the owner is a scumbag who doesn't care what I do as long as I don't get him in trouble. Okay. It's pretty That's a good story. Yeah. It is you know, a good and story. I feel like sometimes that actually is true. I have a friend who was squatting in Emeryville for a long time and uh, the owner basically when they went to go kick up my friend realized that she had actually done a lot of nice things for the place kind of mm -hmm. cleaned it up it made it very homey and also you know put on her own locks and it secured the place and so when the owner saw that my friend was actually taking pretty good care of the property that they were basically just sitting on until you know it was worth them selling and the, i mean a couple of years later the building was just demolished and torn yeah. down they basically just sold it for the lot mm -hmm. but uh they're like okay well as long as you stay here and keep out the, the other squatters that might just be trashing this place or like doing drugs here for example they're like you can you can stay and look over it yes in amsterdam they write extensively of this in their um anarchist literature as anti-squatters because uh people will move in people to keep out the squatters because um the squatters had an agenda which was almost like a citywide takeover of like property towards the end of like collectivizing space. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, they've always talked about like landlords doing that. Like, oh, we, we found someone a little more friendly. Not yeah. that your friend is like that, but yeah, yeah. just to reference some anarchist history or something. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So you started with the garden and obviously since then, quite a lot of this property sort of been, uh, I don't want to use the term developed, but um, you've built it up quite a bit. Definitely. So were, did you build this, that like this is a house essentially, did you kind of build it in one go or did it slowly emerge and, and what was that process like? Um, I built the house over the course of three months, I think, and it was leading up to winter. So I was kind of like racing the rains and yeah. I had a couple friends that had gotten their like construction certificate at Laney. Mm -hmm. And so I just basically picked their brains and read a bunch of books and kind of put it together as close to like a code as one possibly could build a small building. Um, and that took some time and I had never done anything like that before. And then a friend of mine who actually we had been living together on and off for like almost 10 years. I decided to move that person in because I mm -hmm. felt like this is way too much space for like one white girl to be in, you know what I mean, in town. Since then, the garden is nice, but then I started, I work at a native plant nursery and I'm like a kind of like punk native plant botanist. And so I started moving in all these plants. In. Do you use any of these plants for your herbal medicine? Yeah, I use a ton of them. I use yeah. a ton of them. Like I, what, what plant? Uh, the elderberry tree. Uh -huh. And I use... Um, I have some lomatium, and every year I I have the violets, 
and I have some Osha Lovage, and I have Stream Orchid, and I think a faster way to answer that would be like, when I was first here, botanically, the index would have been seven to 10 plants. And mm. now there's over 150 to 160 different species. On this lot, yeah. there's over 100. And wow. I think 70% of that is California native plants. Wow. Um, I know that uh, there's a long, it's been a long history of environmental pollution, environmental racism in West Oakland right. uh, with a lot of like air pollution, you know, ground pollution. Uh, there's been some projects that have been delayed because the remediation hasn't happened, etc. So have you ever like looked into that sort of the soil safety of your land in terms of like making sure it's okay to use the plants that, that grow here? Definitely I have. And um, we learned about that kind of stuff at the last spot we were at because our neighbors were telling us about uh, Oakland's history. Mm -hmm. And so we tested the soil back in the day on West Mac and MOK. And so I tested here and it's like within tolerance of like every city in America mm -hmm. is basically the report back. But the air quality here definitely is very bad. If you leave anything out, uh, you see a kind of film mm. on everything that's from the port. And probably the 880 as well, I'm Definitely. guessing. I won't explain your exact location, but we're pretty close to the 880 here. Definitely. So that's a factor. So things have to be washed and all of the stuff that I use for my herbal holistic apothecary is like, I grow it in the beds, which are clean. They're up above the ground or in pots. Everything else is kind of just like for the birds and I might use for myself on days that I feel okay about it. Yeah. How did you get the water and electricity situation sorted out here? Do you have water and electricity? Um, I don't have either. I haul water, and I've been hauling water for a long time. I used to use a cart, a hand cart. Uh -huh. um, I used to use my hearse back in the day. And I've always, I've had to find different sources of water from houses that are sympathetic. I got lucky that there used to be a squat a block for me, and they had free water for a long time. It was a house full of burners, and I would call it Burner Springs. <laughs> and I would go over there. Um, and there's a couple. And so, yeah, basically I've been hauling it, and it's kind of to the tune of, like, the garden is 25 to 30 gallons every two and a half days. And then the water for me is on top of that. But it's been getting progressively harder to maintain the plants and the garden with the severity of climate change and drought. Like mm. it just is getting so hard. I used to have a lot of stuff in the summer, but I kind of had to give up on summer gardening just because now the summer is so much longer. Wow. So now is the time it's fresh. And I, do all, I do almost all of my growing and stuff like now. Wow. And, and what about electricity? It's all candlelight. Yeah, I've been on candlelight for eight and a half years and now I have some like, I have some little solar light and I have, you know, the little battery pack. I was going to say, because like you have a phone, I I'm do. guessing you have a computer, right? Yeah, so like charging that, you use batteries? Or... I do. And yeah. for a long time before that, there used to be way more cafes and stuff mm. to go to that would be open late night. And there used to be more houses that were like sympathetic to like squatters and they would let us come out and hang out and plug in our stuff and now I have like a little art space that uh, office art space that I do tattooing out of mm -hmm. um, and that's very close so I just yeah. charge it there you said people used to be friendlier to letting squatters hang out and plug in and stuff like that what do you think has happened over the last decade or so well I feel like gentrification and like rent increases have obliterated the scene in a lot of ways there just aren't as many social experiment houses as there were, like collective houses. I feel like the generation that I was in, a lot of people are kind of like fragmented and a little bit obliterated from some of the events of the last 10 years. There's nobody squatting, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I often make a joke that I am like an archaic museum-like fixture in this neighborhood of a long forgotten era. And I feel like people are like, oh my God, that's so cute. Like, look at that thing over there. Collecting cobwebs in my old timer's chair. But I just feel like there's way less cooperative houses 
they've just basically been smashed and it's a stark stark difference to like my life 11 years ago when it was just like that was everywhere when you say smashed can you be a little more specific what happened to all the the squats and i'm sure it's different things so yeah. can you kind of cover that range of the reasons why so many of them no longer exist yeah well after occupy in the following years after that there was like a rash of evictions that struck the squatting scene and just like moved a lot of people out um, and that dispersed people quite a lot and then houses were being bought up at such a like rate and demolished that like there just wasn't you know by like 2013 2014 2015 like there just actually wasn't that many empty spaces anymore or spaces that weren't watched or being developed and then i feel like even after that, the houses that existed as like maybe post squatter or like squatter adjacent that were collective houses and stuff, then I feel like there's just been many waves of evictions for renters. I feel like even people with leases uh, mm -hmm. didn't really have much footing a lot of the time. And I watched it from here being like, I should not have the level of groundedness I have in this space, uh, watching all these renters get kicked out. So it's just like wave after yeah. wave after wave, but definitely there was like 2013, 14 was kind of the death of the scene. The evictions for the most part, how, what does that look like? Is that a, like a sheriff coming to the door and saying like the court ordered you out? Is that landlords hiring people to like beat people up? Is it people leaving on their own free will once they realize they've kind of lost the battle? What do, how do those evictions usually play out or how, how can they play out? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I feel like all of those different ways that you mentioned are ways that it happens. Um, I definitely have seen a lot of evictions with like big police presence. Like the G-Spot was evicted in the middle of a rainstorm by like a street full of police uh, and everyone was just kicked out on the street with their dogs in the rain. And then there was a house called the um, Safe House, I think, and that was almost akin to what happened to the moms for housing house where it's like a tank came and people came in full fatigues with like uh, m16s and it was insane that was kind of the most brutal and then there's stuff like the hot mess where like they came with sheriffs so many times telling us that they were coming and they would like intimidate us and um but then we won the court case and then eventually like it i feel like the the legal avenue often wears people out to the point where it's just easier to leave because mm -hmm. there's not anything in it for them anymore and it's costly in terms of time and energy and money i think that's kind of the death of places more than anything just like the mental fatigue of constantly fighting the system yeah and having like sheriffs up your ass all the time and receiving stuff and going to the court and losing and then the court kind of like spitting in your face and and then that deteriorates it often deteriorates the house in the the people in the house because everyone's like fatigued and anxious and it's quite an anxiety thing to be like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks during an eviction process wondering when they're going to come mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well plus i know when you feel a little bit more secure in a place you will invest in making it nice yeah. whereas if you feel like you could get booted at any moment what's the point in painting the walls yeah. or you know redoing some of the appliances or something like that that's right it's a good point um you mentioned some of the challenges of of squatting like yeah just the precarity uh the lack of water <laughs> lack of electricity what are some of the other things in your experience that have been the hardest that you faced, whether it's like specific situations, like the scary thing happened or just like in general? The hardest things, um, oh my God. Um, some of the hardest things are like just having to protect yourself. I mean, no matter what story you come up with, people know what you're doing when they know, and that can lead to people trying to take over the spot or trying to like, uh, rob you or trying to like move you on or, um, I feel like that happened a lot for me in other places. And then there's always like that one neighbor that wants to get you the hell up out of there as soon as possible and is able to pull a whole team of other neighbors and make life horrible. I think that's like 
the most beyond just like the grinding, grueling eviction processes, which are scary and like really time consuming. What happens when a neighbor shows up on your front door with friends saying like, <laughs> you need to get the hell out of here? What, what have you done in that situation? Um, well, to answer your, a question, a part of a question that you asked earlier, like some houses, the eviction process would be like the landlord would come with a gun and be like, get the fuck up out of here. And then there was, um, uh, there was a house in North Oakland somewhere. And that house was like, yeah, the landlord came with like a whole crew of people and basically just like fought everybody out. So that is an option. And for me, what do I do? Um, I just try to, I mean, all you can do is really just stand there and like stand in front of the door and be like, what can I help you with? And just try to use every means to like get the person to turn around and leave or be like, come back again. But it kind of comes down to just being tough and being like a barrier and just being mm -hmm. like, absolutely no. And I don't know, you know, sometimes neighbors aren't always like that and you just have to work on them for a while and be like, well, you know, that's your opinion and I will, I will be here. Feel free to come back again, but I'll be here. It's kind of like an art of like, it is an art of becoming kind of untouchable. Sometimes I have used like legal jargon to throw a person or, or distractions, maneuvering. It's, there's like a whole, um, I feel like there's kind of a whole theater of it that, like, I am very expert at. <laughs> just, just to say, there's many pointers that yeah. people have given me, and I just feel like they don't all work at once, but one usually does the job of getting you another 24 yeah. hours. you got to kind of read the situation. Exactly, huh? exactly. Because it can't always be like, if all you do is be like, well, then let's go, then, like, you'll, <laughs> you'll get kicked out of every spot. Yeah. Um... I'm wondering if you can sort of, in general, uh, sort of describe like this block or this part of West Oakland that you live in and how it's changed over the last, you know, decade or so and like the composition of the street and like, yeah, just kind of your relationship with the neighbors here and how you feel like you kind of fit in to this whole West Oakland ecosystem. Yeah, it was super different when I moved here like eight years ago, nine years ago now. Um, it was way more black. And I just feel like the legacy of the Black Panther Party is still like alive and well here. I feel like the second headquarters of the Black Panther Party was just down the street from here, I think, mm -hmm. on Peralta mm -hmm. in like 11th, maybe close. And they just put up that Huey P statue down the street. Yeah, yeah. And if we take the last squat I was at as an example, like there was like an elder black matriarch of the block and like her kids and her kids kids lived on the other side and their friends and you know it was just very like historic oakland people knew each other they did they definitely knew each other and they didn't know me and it was um not hostile but kind of like there was definitely some uh hazing going on because being a squatter you're kind of just like a silly uh <laughs> exaggerated like cartoon but yeah, I feel like for the most part, neighbors in Oakland have always been extremely accommodating and super nice. And even when they don't like you, it's like a personality thing and it doesn't have to become this big political thing. And Well, anyway, that block, within the course of three years from like 2015 to 2017, I would say eight of the houses flipped. And that was about the time that they were the first house that sold for $700,000 in West Oakland was. And now that block is really quiet. There's just one house left uh, that's basically the old historic inhabitants. And 14 years ago when I came down here and tried to live down here, I feel like I came for an interview in a house and then it was like sundown and someone was like, you better get out of here before the sun goes down, which was like kind of racist and rude, but it was the time of the gang injunctions and like OPD was being like extremely hostile and fucked up. And it was just like a hard time in town. And now it's like a film set or like once there was a tea cozy streetcar on a block from here or any number of things where it's like, it's definitely very different. 
I don't even think that I could afford to live here without the squat. It's very, thinking of moving out of here uh, is one of, should I move out of the bay? Mm-hmm. Just because mm-hmm. it's so expensive. And luckily the block I'm on really hasn't changed at all. Yeah. And like all these people have been here and my neighbors are super nice and lovely and they've been really supportive of me even when friends and family haven't been actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Super nice. You mentioned that when you were first really squatting in the bay um, around 2010-ish or so, give or take, uh, there was like a whole network of squats, people that were sort of in, involved in these various political projects, people that knew each other, different uh, you know, punk houses with like shows happening all the time, and how, and you talked about how that sort of evaporated over the last decade. Mm-hmm. What are sort of like the pros and cons of being in a big community of squatters like that? Because I'm sure that it's fun to have a lot of friends who are kind of doing the same thing and you know there's a lot of people in solidarity and there's you know this whole social scene but i know that there was a lot of challenges in that scene as well and a lot of a lot of infighting really and so i'm wondering if you can kind of like looking back now a decade or so later with some hindsight what do you think were like the highs and lows of that era uh yeah highs and lows of squatting are the highs are high and the lows are low. I feel like this is a great topic that squatters from that era like to talk about. And well, the highs would definitely be like um, majority trans squats that were like extremely racially mixed, culturally mixed, um, being places where like an autonomous zone where you could like really express and be who you are outside of the confines of like this cisgender heterosexual like policing gaze and like society and places where you could try on different identities you could try on different manners of relating to people you could try on different ways of organizing your like small tiny society and like uh, try different ways of like solidarity work and meeting people that you usually wouldn't meet and like hearing uh different philosophies on liberation and et cetera, et cetera, from like all over. That was huge. And I saw many people grow and change and transition and like come into themselves in a way that like, and myself included, that would have never happened had it just been like, I have to devote my time to like making money and I have to like a lot, X amount of my time at work. Being able to take time off of work to like focus on these kind of things was really life-changing for people. Also like all the squats formed a kind of loose federation where like we would defend each other's squat. So like 50 to 100, maybe like 50 to 60 people like rolling up at a time to defend an eviction is like pretty amazing. Even like 25 was really big. And when you live with that many people, like you're able to like get Well, we are able to perform a lot of solidarity actions in terms of generating a lot of revenue through like shows and um, for prisoners and for bail uh, locally and abroad for like comrades and stuff. And we were able to like hold workshops and educate each other in new ways and bring educators in. And those are some of the pluses. The cons would be like the constant tension of is a squat a place for everybody with no rules or is it okay to have a closed door policy that was a huge site of tension that sucked again squat takeovers either through like opposing political parties or drug users um and other negatives would be like the negative aspects of punk which is like fuck everything and you just like break the house into pieces and like people don't give a shit and anarchy means i do whatever i want bro uh that kind of thing yeah, those are some cons. What about like um, more physical issues of discomfort? Like you mentioned that you lived at a place that had like no roof yeah. and it was wet and cold. What's that like, uh, you know, when you're lying in a house with no water, no electricity and it's freezing and there's like rats running around and like pigeons flying through the ceiling. Do you ever think, or like, what do you think in that moment? What did you think <laughs> in that moment? Uh, 
some of it was scary, you know, mm -hmm. especially that place. Like, okay, the Hot Mess RCA, like, yes, there was a lot of rats there. And often, like, the bathrooms didn't work. It was in a state of decay. But you were surrounded with people. And I just feel like people trying to figure out how to exist in the space, how to improve it, how to exist together, how to make it through. That was really big. When I was alone in that squat and the roof was leaking and the rats, like, that was scary as shit. And I feel like the woman who passed it to me was such a tough person. And I was like, whoa, I'm, I'm going to be tough like that when I exit this place. And it's true. It taught me a lot about, like, the dregs of squatting and at first you couldn't even pay me to move in there but I didn't have anywhere else to sleep other than my hearse and that gets weird seeing people see you like roll out of a hearse every morning and there's just not a lot of space in there just enough to lie down like a dead body so um I feel like a lot of people aren't able to do that right mm -hmm. it's kind of like a thing for able-bodied individuals or there's a lot of barriers to making squatting like a lot of people can participate. And at its best, it inspires a sense of how do I make this space better DIY style. And at least in the collective experience, you would see that light a fire into like really uh, intriguing experiments and processes and projects. Do you think there's any way that you could have afforded to stay in the Bay Area this long if you hadn't been squatting? I think probably had I stopped and got a place like nine years ago that had rent control. Um, mm -hmm. But I kind of feel like I could have easily been evicted even with a fine lease just because like that's just the nature of like sharky landlording trying to like get that extra thousand dollars a month. So I could have, but it's really hard for me to like maintain the kind of level of working and grinding yourself to death that the kind of rent exploitation out here uh, necessitates because I just have some really intense mental health stuff that will just I'll just break down you know so it's like I'm not really sure yeah. but I love being in the bay and all of my chosen family and uh, uh, so much of my experience and comrades and community are here that it's just like and especially being trans in a kind of trans mecca like where else would I go mm -hmm. this is how I've stayed when I've answered how where else would I go are you ever tempted though to go for the adverse possession of this lot I have been actually I have been the whole time and I think recently because I feel like my time I would like to leave and have electricity someday and I have and I thought it was accessible to me in a very far off way as just like a working class trans girl whose parents probably will leave me enough money to bury them with and little else. Um, I thought, oh, maybe collectively we could do it, but I actually just got a auction notice in the mail mm. and they were like, you can totally stop the auction if you first pay like $200,000 by this date and I thought the back taxes were like $80,000 mm -hmm. no $80,000 like I'm like I got five on that I do not <laughs> even have $1,000 so like it kind of made me be like oh I think that I've been outclassed and it would take some other means to make it happen than I am privy to mm -hmm. It, it sounds like that's just out of your the realm of possibility for your financial situation, but $200,000 for a lot like this size in West Oakland is still what people would consider a good deal, considering how much similar lots have gone for all over this neighborhood in recent years. I mean, teardown's going for a million dollars. I know, definitely, definitely. And that's kind of like, that's a big difference from now back then, too, is that like a $200,000 lot 11 years ago had a lot more clout on it and like developers would sleep on it and now that's just not the case so do you have any sense of why it's coming up for auction again oh it just does um periodically because the back taxes aren't paid 
Yeah. So and it's just like on a cycle. It's on a cycle, and sometimes we make it on the list, and sometimes we don't. And uh, this is like, this is not my first rodeo with them, mm-hmm. for sure. If Alameda County decides to put Violet's lot up for auction, she told me that she probably won't have the energy for a big battle this time around. And like she said, having electricity and running water someday, that'd be nice. So Violet knows her squatting days might be numbered. If the property eventually does get sold though, she'd like to see it end up in the hands of a group like Moms for Housing or the Segurte Land Trust, but who knows when the sale might actually happen. According to a recent Oakland site article, there are over 700 tax defaulted properties in Oakland and about 200 of them were put up at the last auction, but only 12 sold. So maybe Violet's little oasis is safe for now. But at the same time, you've got to remember that this is a neighborhood where houses that sold for, I don't know, around $200,000 a decade ago are now going for four or five times that. So it's hard to imagine that that financial pressure won't have some kind of an impact sooner rather than later. In the meantime, there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things to try to keep folks off the street. Everything from churches that let RVs use their parking lots to proposals to turn school district properties into teacher housing to some, but not nearly enough, low-income residential construction. Uh, There's also the city-run tough shed encampments or whatever they're calling them these days. But, and I don't mean to sound too negative here because I respect a lot of these efforts, but I just don't know if putting band-aids on a broken system will ever really solve the, the underlying problems that created the inequality and injustice that led to our housing crisis in the first place. So that's why Even though squatting isn't really practical or even like a desirable solution for most people, it does present an interesting approach to the problem. It shows what's possible when people stop trying to play by the rules of a broken system and create something totally different instead. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Before I give the shout outs, I just want to mention that I'm hoping to do some more in-person events this summer, uh, and I'm looking for venues that might be a good fit and folks that might want to help produce like an East Bay Yesterday Live type thing. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in or you've got uh, some tips for me, drop me a line, eastbayyesterday at gmail. All right, um, big thanks to everybody who donates to keep this show alive. You folks, the people who support my Patreon, you're the reason why this show still exists, and I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. If anyone else wants to support East Bay Yesterday, the link is at my site. Uh, while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, my social media, all that good stuff. Uh, as always, if you like the show, please help spread the word. It really helps, and I get it. Most people don't share podcasts on social media. That's okay. Next time you're at like a dinner party, you know, liven up the conversation. Tell your friends something interesting you heard on East Bay yesterday. Uh, ask them if they've ever considered living rent-free. Tell me you might have some tips uh, that you learned in the latest episode of this podcast. Uh, something like that. Um, as always, I think this show is a good conversation starter. You'll be the star of the party. Thank me later. Um, what else? Uh, the music for this episode came from Zounds. That's about it. See you soon with another episode. Peace.